Good morning, church family. I'd like to encourage you to take your copy of God's Word and look with me to the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah. Over the course of the next several weeks, we're going to be looking together to Isaiah at some of the servant songs as we reflect upon this time of the year for, for Easter. So Isaiah chapter 49 this morning. Isaiah chapter 49 this morning as we reflect together on these servant songs in the book of Isaiah. How do you like the new wood pulpit? It's beautiful. I wondered if some of you recognize. Uh, this is a gift from our friends at First Baptist Church, Lindell, Texas. Most of you will know that we've been in partnership with Lindell for uh, seven, eight years now in a mission work in India reaching an unreached people group. And uh, they got a new pulpit and they gifted us their, uh, their beautiful wood pulpit. <laughs> Isaiah 49, as we reflect together today on this servant song from Isaiah 49, particularly this morning in verses 1 through 7, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah is divided into two main sections. Isaiah chapter 1 through verse 39 reflect primarily upon uh, the southern portion of Israel uh, against Judah, and there in those texts there are judgment sayings, a lot of judgment sayings against foreign pagan countries. For example, if you go to chapters 23, 24, 25, 26, 27, you can read a number of judgment statements against these four nations that have uh, invaded Israel. And yet we know from reading the book of Isaiah that even these uh, invasions by these foreign nations are in themselves also a sign of judgment against Judah. And Judah's primary problem in many ways is also the primary problem of our own human hearts, one of idolatry. So chapters 1 through 39 speak of these judgments primarily against foreign nations. Isaiah 40 through 66 is the second half of Isaiah. And here, Isaiah begins to shift focus. Not that there aren't judgment sayings, there for sure are judgment sayings that are chronicled in Isaiah 40 through 66. But the primary emphasis in Isaiah 40 through 66 is this forward-looking nature from Isaiah. You might remember from our time in Isaiah a number of years ago, particularly in Isaiah 60 and 64 and 65 and 66, we have these wonderful statements about this future reign of this coming glorious kingdom of God. Isaiah is writing, I want you to remember as we make our way through this text, Isaiah is writing some 700 years, however, before Messiah, before Jesus himself will ever arrive on the scene. And as we go through three of the four servant songs over the course of the next three Sundays, I want you to marvel at the beauty and the majesty and the prophetic voice of God's Word as we look back 700 years 
before Jesus himself would become God incarnate. And we see with great specificity Isaiah's seeing of the person of Jesus. There are four servant songs here in Isaiah. The first servant song appears in Isaiah chapter 42. In Isaiah 42, the first servant song appears in the emphasis there, what we learn of this servant is this servant is going to be one who is spirit-filled as he lives out his mission that Yahweh has given to him. The second servant song appears here in our text this morning in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. And we learn here in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 1 through 7, from the very beginning, there is something unique about this servant, for this servant is a prophet of God. And as we see from this text this morning, this servant will be a prophet of God unlike anything the nation of Israel has ever seen. Next Sunday, we'll reflect together on the second of the servant songs occurring in chapter 50. And there in chapter 50, primarily in verses 4 through 9, we learn that this suffering servant or this servant is one who is obedient to God, even obedient through suffering. And then, of course, that apex of the servant servant songs appears in Isaiah 52, chapter, chapter 52, verse 13 through 53, verse 12. And there we learn that this suffering servant, this servant will be one who suffers and yet makes substitution through his servant, through his service on behalf of the nation of Israel, and ultimately toward the Gentiles. Who is this servant? The servant in, these, in this section of Isaiah is mentioned over 28 times, and in the servant songs is mentioned eight times, and particularly in our text this morning, the servant is mentioned uh, four times just in our text today. His, uh, theologians have pontificated. You could go to a library and half of a library could be filled with uh, people assuming who this suffering servant, who this, I keep wanting to say suffering servant. We don't get to the suffering servant until 52 and 53. Who this servant is. And yet we know from the text of scripture, even in the New Testament, Jesus himself understands his life and ministry to be a fulfillment of this servant that is mentioned here in these four songs. Not only does Jesus see himself as the fulfillment of this servant, but the New Testament writers themselves. And I'm going to look at two texts this morning, one from Matthew and one that we read earlier from Acts chapter 13. Look at Jesus as he sees himself as being this fulfillment of this servant. Look with me in Jesus' statement in Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22, we'll read verse, let's read verse 30, start in verse 35. Luke chapter 22, we'll begin reading in verse 35. 
And he said to them, that is Jesus said to them, when I sent you out with no money bag or knapsack or sandals, did you lack anything? And they said nothing. And he said to them, but now let the one who has a money bag take it and likewise a knapsack and let the one who has no sword sell his cloak and buy one. For I tell you that this scripture must be fulfilled where? In me. And what was that scripture that must be fulfilled in him? Jesus notes it for us from one of the servant songs in Isaiah. And he was numbered with the transgressors. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. And they said, look, Lord, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. Jesus himself clearly understood that the right fulfillment of these servant songs in Isaiah was himself. But not only does Jesus understand himself to be the fulfillment of these servant songs, so do the disciples of Jesus. Look with me in Matthew chapter 8. In Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17, and here Matthew's reflection. Matthew chapter 8, verses 16 and 17. That evening they brought to him many who were oppressed by demons, and he cast out the spirits with a word and healed all who were sick. Why did he do this? Matthew tells us why Jesus has performed ministry in this way. Jesus functions in this way. Why? Verse 17, this was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. He took our illness and bore our diseases. Matthew clearly understands Jesus to be the fulfillment of the servant songs. So we come to these servant songs here in Isaiah, the second half of Isaiah in chapters 40 through 66. And as I mentioned a few moments earlier, it is clear that the primary problem for the nation of Israel is likewise a problem for us, one of idolatry. And you see this listed from the very beginning in Isaiah chapter 40 as Yahweh himself speaks out against the idolatry, the idolatrous heart of the nation of Israel. So how are these, how are these servant songs functioning in the larger context of Isaiah 40 through 66 with this emphasis upon idolatry, with this emphasis upon the future? These servant songs speak contrary to the idolatry that is taking place in the heart and lives of those who claim to be followers of Yahweh. And what these servant songs show us is that there is a far greater way than creating a God in our own image who at the end of the day cannot speak, cannot hear, and cannot act. 
For this servant, this servant is one who can hear, and this servant is one who can speak, and this servant is one who can act. Jesus, my friends, is far greater than any God you or I could ever create or make in our own minds, in our own hearts, or with our own hands. Look as Isaiah constructs for us this prophetic servant here in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Notice what Isaiah tells us first about this prophet, about this servant here in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 2. This prophet is one who is called by Yahweh. This servant is one who is called by Yahweh to accomplish a mission. Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 2. Listen to me, O coastlands, and give attention, you peoples, from afar. There is this prophetic announcement that is going to ring out, but notice this prophetic announcement is not solely intended for the nation of Israel. We learn something about this prophetic announcement even from the very beginning of this text of Scripture of Yahweh giving us this warning that there is this prophet who is going to arise. To whom is this message intended concerning this prophet? Isaiah speaks this prophetic word to all peoples. He is extending this reflection of this servant to all peoples, to all of you who extend all the way to the coastlands, those of you who are in some measurable way far away from the city of Jerusalem, this message is intended for you, but not only for you, for those of you who are far away. Who are the far away people? The Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles? You and me. As Isaiah begins this reflection on this servant, remember I said to you earlier that Isaiah is writing how many years before Jesus would arrive on the scene? 700. How many years later are you and I standing after the person of Messiah? Some 2,000. Isaiah saw with clarity that this servant, 700 years before he would arrive, would be a servant that would even extend to you and me 2,000 years after this servant had arrived. This is not a message solely for those living in Isaiah's day, friend. This reflection of this servant is also intended for you and for me, those who are far away from the city of Jerusalem, from the very place from an Old Testament perspective that God himself 
dwelt. The Lord called me from the womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. He made my mouth like a sharp sword, and in the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. Now notice what happens in this text of Scripture. The servant himself is actually going to speak. We see this prophetic warning at the very beginning of chapter 49, verse 1, that we should pay attention. And then what immediately happens? This servant begins to make a revelation of himself. And notice the way in which this servant reveals himself. It's in a very prophet-like way. Think with me for just a moment, both from an Old Testament standpoint and a New Testament standpoint, of other prophetic announcements such as this that begin with a reflection on the beginning of the prophet and the womb of his mother. Jeremiah. Jeremiah reflects in Jeremiah chapter 10 upon his beginnings. And Jeremiah reminds us that he was well known by Yahweh in his, in his mother's womb. And notice what this servant is reflecting about himself as he makes this prophetic announcement. The Lord called me from when? From my mother's womb, from the body of my mother, he named my name. We go back to, or we fast forward to the book of Matthew. We see that in Jesus, this prophetic word finds its fulfillment. For when do we learn about Jesus' name? Mary is pregnant. An angel of the Lord appears to Joseph. And what does the angel of the Lord say to Joseph? You shall give him the name Jesus. Why? Because he himself is going to save his people from their sins. Joseph doesn't know the name of Jesus. Mary doesn't know the name of Jesus before Jesus is in the womb of Mary. This is this prophetic word. This is the way in which the text is revealing for us that there is something very unique about this servant. He will be a prophet from God. He will be a prophet of God from the very beginning. Yahweh has set his affection upon this servant in such a way that the servant's success is guaranteed, not because necessarily who the servant is, but because of who God is. This is going to be a servant unlike anything we have seen. He is named by Yahweh himself in his mother's womb. Verse 2 He made my mouth like a sharp sword. In the shadow of his hand, he hid me. He made me a polished arrow in his quiver. 
he hid me away. This is the servant reminding us that he's been created for a very specific purpose. He's been called, if you will, for this very specific purpose. What is the purpose that this servant will fulfill? What is the task that this servant has been given that is like, unlike any other task given to a servant? We learn from the very beginning of verse 2, the uniqueness of this servant's ministry. This servant's ministry will be one that is grounded in the power of the word. Look again closely at the beginning of verse 2. He made my what? Mouth. He made my mouth like a sharp sword. How is this servant going to rule? How is this servant going to reign? There is another king in Isaiah that is being juxtaposed against this king, against this prophet. His name is Cyrus. How does Cyrus conquer? Cyrus conquers by the sword. Cyrus conquers with military might and power. But this servant is not going to respond in the same way that this mighty Cyrus responds. No, this servant is not going to conquer by the power of the sword. This servant is going to conquer by the power of his word. How does this servant conquer? By the power of his word. Revelation, written some 50 to 70 years after Jesus' ascension, references for us exactly how this servant Jesus is going to conquer by the power of his word. Look with me in Revelation chapter 1, and then again in Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 1, we'll read verse 16. Revelation chapter 1, verse 16. This is what John sees of this conquering king. In his right hand he held seven stars, and from his mouth came a sharp two-edged sword, and his face was like the sun shining in full strength. Revelation chapter 19. Revelation chapter 19. We'll read verse 15 and verse 26. Revelation chapter 19. This king is one who rides on a white horse and he conquers and How does he do that? Verse 15, from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. And then read again here in 19, verse 21. 
And the rest were slain, how? By the sword they came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This servant, my friends, conquers with the power of his word. So it reminds us that the battle that this servant will lead is not primarily a physical battle. This battle that this servant will lead is not a battle that can be won by a sword or any other military might or power. Why? Because this is a battle that is ultimately being waged for the hearts and minds and souls of humanity. This is a spiritual battle. And there is only one way in which the spiritual battle can be won. The only way for a spiritual battle to be won is by the power of the Word of God. This is why Paul will write in Romans chapter 1, for the gospel is the power of God unto salvation. Jesus has given to you and to me his word. And this word is efficacious. This word is powerful. As the writer of Hebrews will say to us, this word is a double-edged sword. Jesus, the servant mentioned here in Isaiah chapter 49, is a prophet who has been given a mission by God and will himself be protected by God. For notice the very end of chapter, of verse two. <coughs> he made me a polished arrow in his quiver. He hid me away. This servant has the guarantee that the task that he has been sent to accomplish will be one that is protected by Yahweh himself. But it's not only the servant, my friend, who will function in battle in this way, but it will also be the way in which those who have pledged their lives to this servant, in other words, the followers of this servant, will also function in this way. Listen as Paul reflected upon the servant's role in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, beginning in verse 4. For the weapons of our warfare, who is our? those who by faith have trusted in Christ. For the weapons, we might say, of believers, warfare, are not of the flesh, but have divine power to do what? Destroy strongholds. 
We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete. How is the Apostle Paul saying he is functioning in light of this servant's acts? How is Paul claiming you and I are to join this servant in the battle that is waging for the hearts and minds and souls of humanity in the same way that this servant is fighting those battles with the power of God's word we destroy all lofty opinions of men who have been set against the word of God. This servant is going to be a prophet. This servant is one who has the guarantee of Yahweh himself. God himself will protect this servant. But notice what we learn else. Notice what also we learn about this servant in verse 3. This servant will be one who fulfills God's will. And he said to me, this is the servant speaking again, and he said to me, you are my servant, Israel, in whom I will be glorified. Now it's interesting, we might be prone to conclude from the reading of verse 3 that indeed the servant is Israel. Does Israel succeed in being the right servant of God? Does Israel fulfill this ultimate prophetic word from God of being one who is spirit-filled or being this prophetic voice or ultimately from Isaiah 52 and 53 of being this servant who suffers as a substitute to provide atonement for others? No. What has Israel done? Israel has failed. But Jesus is the embodiment of what God, of what Yahweh intended for the nation of Israel to be. Jesus will do what the nation of Israel did not do. Jesus will do what the nation of Israel could not do. Israel has failed. Jesus will succeed. And notice what the servant says in relationship to this role. You are my servant, Israel. And what will Yahweh do in this servant? Yahweh will be glorified. Could Yahweh, be, could Yahweh be ultimately glorified through sinful Israel? No. But God will be glorified through the perfect, sinless 
Son, Jesus. And how is Yahweh ultimately glorified? How is God ultimately glorified in the person of Jesus Christ? The song of the servant from chapter 52 and 53 reveals to us how this servant will ultimately glorify God. This servant will ultimately glorify God as, a, as he gives his life in a brutal, in a death, in a vicarious death on the cross. For John reminds us that when Jesus is high and lifted up, he will draw all people to himself, and in doing so, he will ultimately glorify God. This servant is ultimately glorified, you won't be surprised, in and through and by his service. Jesus brings glory to God as he ultimately serves the Father's divine purpose in sending him to make atonement for the sins of the world. We oftentimes like to take titles. For we understand titles have great meaning. But let's just be honest. We don't always fulfill those titles, do we? We don't always hold up to the standards of that office or that title. But notice what Isaiah says about this servant. This servant will completely, totally fulfill God's purpose. How? Through his service. He is an obedient servant to the task and the will of the one who has sent him, Yahweh. He will fulfill God's call. But notice what verses 4 and 5 teach us about this servant. Verses 4 and 5 remind us that this servant is one that trusts fully and completely and totally in God. The servant speaking again, verse 4, but I said I have labored in vain. I have spent my strength for nothing and vanity. We know that Jesus in this crucifix narrative came to that point where he felt abandoned by God and so he, he called out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the servant. 700 years before, the, before he will ever arrive, speaking prophetically about that moment in which he hangs on the cross, feeling abandoned by God. But does the servant abandon his mission in that moment of feeling abandoned by God? No. The last half of verse 4. <clears throat> Yet surely, 
My right is with the Lord, and my recompense with my God. Jesus does not turn away from God. Jesus does not turn away from the mission that God has sent him to accomplish. Verse 5, and now the Lord says, he who formed me from the womb to be his servant, to bring Jacob back to him. So if, I, if for just a moment, back to verse 3, if the servant is indeed Israel, how does Israel now fulfill verse 5? How does Israel bring Israel back? Israel can't bring Israel back. Israel has failed. Israel needs somebody outside of her to bring Israel back. This servant is Jesus. He's given me the task to bring Jacob back to him and that Israel may be gathered to him for I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has become my strength. The servant is one who fully trusts in God and knows that ultimately he can accomplish the task given to him. Why? Because God is with him. And God has called himself a new covenant people. And in the same way in which the Messiah stands, the same way in which this servant stands in the certainty and the confidence and the trust of Yahweh, so too can you and I who stand as followers of this person, Jesus. Why? Because we have the exact same certainty that the servant had. We have the same promise that the servant had. We can have the same trust that the servant had. Why? Because we hear the words of Jesus. And lo, I am with you. How long? Always. Verses 6 and 7 is going to mention just briefly what we will see clearly articulated in chapters 52 and 53. Chapter 49, verses 6 and 7 is going to mention just briefly, give us just a hint that this servant is ultimately going to accomplish God's task by suffering. But the servant can know that even as he faces the most daunting of all tasks, he can face those difficult tasks. Why? God is with him. Here, as Isaiah communicates that here in verses 6 and 7, he says, is it too light a thing that you should be my servant, to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach, where? To the ends of the earth. Thus says the Lord, the Redeemer of Israel and His Holy One, to one deeply despised 
abhorred by the nation. The servant of rulers, kings shall see and arise princes, and they shall prostrate themselves because of the Holy Lord, because of the Lord who is faithful, the Holy One of Israel, who has chosen you. This servant accomplishes God's will by serving in and with humility. No pride, no arrogance, no thinking that he is too good for this type of service. One of humble service to God but one of service to God that reaches to all people. This text from Isaiah chapter 49 verse 6 is the text from which we read this morning from Acts chapter 13 as the Apostle Paul, if you want to turn with me just quickly to Acts chapter 13, as, the Paul, as Paul is in some measurable way given a, a defense of his of his own ministry, uh, an explanation of why he's going to be taking this gospel narrative to the Gentiles. Let's begin reading in Acts chapter 13 and verse 45. Or let's 44. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds... They were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what Paul, what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, What? It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are turning to whom? To the Gentiles. And what, how does Paul ground, and what does Paul ground his mission work to the Gentiles? In his feelings? In his hopes? In his desires? No, in the very word of God. Look what he does in verse 47. For so the Lord has commanded. What has God commanded? I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. Paul understands his own prophetic ministry in some ways to be an extension of the servant's ministry for the servant's ministry was to extend to all people. And how does the ministry of the servant extend to all people? The ministry of God's servant extends to all people through God's other servants who by faith have trusted in God's supreme servant, Jesus. So don't miss it, friends. Jesus is the ultimate fulfillment of this prophetic servant song in Isaiah 49. But you and I also stand in the prophetic line of this text of Scripture, as we live out our lives in obedience to this servant by taking the servant's gospel message 
to the entire world. Why should we? Why do we labor to proclaim this gospel narrative around the world? Because we stand in God's direct line of revelation of making the beauty and the glory of God's Son known to the world. Jesus was God's ultimate servant. But you and I as believers are to be servants of Jesus, taking this same gospel narrative to the very ends of the world. And how do we take this gospel narrative to the ends of the world? In the same way that Jesus took this gospel narrative to the ends of the world, in humility and obedience to the Father. Isaiah says that this one who's going to be a servant to all nations will be one that is a light. Anybody want to take a guess as to who this light is? Notice what Jesus says in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. How does this light permeate your life and my life? How do we come to understand who this light is? By trusting in God's servant, Jesus. Jesus is the light of the world. And how will he accomplish his purpose? By suffering. Did you hear the hint of that suffering in verse 7? To one deeply despised, Abhorred by the nations, the servant of rulers. Jesus will accomplish his task not in the image of how his disciples anticipated. For you might remember back to Luke as Jesus is walking with his disciples, he's speaking to them concerning the kingdom of God, and what are they most excited about? They're most excited about which ones go sit on his right and which ones go sit on his left. How are they understanding Jesus' servant ministry? One of humility or one of power and might? They've missed the intended purpose of Jesus' ministry. But Jesus shows us through his life that he is ultimately going to accomplish the Lord's will by suffering. But what does this suffering accomplish? Isaiah now tells us what this suffering will accomplish in verses 8 through 13. This suffering will ultimately accomplish the restoration of Israel and the salvation of the Gentiles. Thus says the Lord, verse 8, in a time of favor I have answered you, in a day of salvation I have helped you. I will keep you and give you as a covenant to the people to establish the land, to apportion the desolate heritage, saying to the prisoners, come out, 
to those who are in darkness appear. They shall feed along the, the ways, and all bare heights shall be their pasture. Do you see how God's going to provide for, for those who live in his forever kingdom? We'll have every nourishment that we need. They shall not hunger or thirst, neither scorching wind nor sun shall strike them, for he who has pity on them will lead them, and by springs of water will guide them. And I will make all my mountains a road, and my highways shall be raised up. Behold, these shall come from afar, and behold, these from the north and from the west and from the land of Sinai. Sing for joy, O heavens, and exalt, O earth. Bring forth, O mountains, into singing, for the Lord has comforted his, comforted his people and will have compassion on his afflicted. Jesus will, Jesus has accomplished God's task for him as the ultimate servant and securing the salvation of those who by faith have trusted in God's servant. Friends, there's only one way for you to enjoy the benefit spoken of in Isaiah chapter 49, verses 7 through 13. And the only way for you to join in this eschatological forever enjoyment of God is by believing in God's servant revealed in Isaiah 49, verses 1 through 7. Have you trusted in Jesus? Have you believed in this one who the power of his word is changing the hearts and lives of people who were once dead in their trespasses and sins, but have been made alive unto Christ? And if you have trusted in this servant, are you living your life like this servant? Are you living your life in humility? Are you like this servant seeking to accomplish God's will for your life? This text reminds us of the beauty of God's servant and the call for you and me as followers of God's servant to live our lives like this servant so that we might join in this servant's mission by making this servant's mission known to the ends of the world. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this revelation of yourself to us. We thank you that you have revealed to us the beauty of this servant who is a prophet, a servant who walks in humility, a servant who seeks to accomplish God's will. And Lord, we pray and ask that in each of our hearts and lives, that we too might be like this servant. People of faith, 
walking in obedience to God's word. Friend, would you take a few moments where you're seated this morning and just reflect on the beauty of this text? Have you trusted in this servant? Are you following this servant's mission in your own life? Are you walking in humility? In just a few moments, we're going to stand and corporately respond to the preaching of God's Word. If you're here today and you've never trusted in God's servant, would you know that this servant song is for you? God has intended to bring salvation to all people, and He has done so by sending this servant who has appeased the very wrath of God and made atonement for the sins of the world. If you've never trusted in this servant, as we stand and sing in a few moments, we would plead with you to trust in this servant. If you have questions about what it means to trust in this servant, myself and Pastor Travis will be standing down front. We'll be glad to share with you how you can trust in this servant. But friend, you don't have to come speak to one of us. You can turn to someone seated next to you for there are plenty of people in this room that would be glad to share with you, seated around you that would be glad to share with you how you can trust in this servant. And maybe you would like for one of us to pray with you. As you've seen the beauty of this servant today, that your love for this servant might increase, your affection for him might grow. We would delight in shepherding your heart by praying for you. Or thirdly, if you'd like to express an interest in being part of this faith family, this would be an opportunity for you to do so. For you to say that I believe God has placed it on my my heart to live out my life on mission with him in the context of this faith family, this would be an opportunity for you to express your interest in being part of of this body of Christ. Lord, as we respond to you now, we ask that our response might be pleasing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me as we sing?